How many of you remember May 25th, 1977? If you're a Star Wars fan, you might know that this was the release date for the very first Star Wars movie, which was called A New Hope. Now, I love Star Wars, but if you don't, that's okay, that's okay, um, because we are going to move on to another event that happened shortly after uh, that may interest another demographic. Several weeks after May 25, as Star Wars was dazzling crowds across America, Washington Adventist Conference camp meeting was pitched in Auburn. And it didn't quite make nationwide news, um, but it was apparently a big enough deal to inspire my grandparents, my dad's parents, to pack him and his family up in their car on their farm in Goldendale, Washington, and drive out of the vacuum of rural living into the Seattle area. This was a pretty big deal for them. For someone who spent their days quite literally plowing fields and attending a school made up of mostly family members, camp meeting was a really special place for my dad. He was suddenly surrounded by all these unfamiliar faces and sounds and programs, um, and he thought that was pretty exciting. But there was more to come. One day, his older cousin decided to gather all the kids in the family up, put them in the car, and go for a drive. And soon, they found themselves at the movie theater. Now, if you're a lifelong Adventist, you know this might already be pushing the comfort levels of a kid who's grown up reading exclusively Ellen White and KJV Bibles. <laughs> Due to his parents' principles, he'd never been to the theater. Actually, he'd never seen a single movie before. No movies, ever but his cousin had bought the tickets. He didn't want to be rude, so he allowed himself to be herded through the door, and he found himself sitting in front of that starry screen that we all know and love with the yellow block text scrolling across it. The following experience he, to this day, recalls as some of the most existentially disturbing hours of his life. Imagine spending every day in the quiet of the outdoors, caring for animals, harvesting crops, learning in a small, quiet classroom in a countryside church, only to be thrown in front of a screen playing what your young Adventist brain can only interpret as a violent, space-themed interpretation of the great controversy. Lightsabers, aliens, interstellar travel, it all held him completely entranced and terrified. Three hours later, my dad was returned to his parents, a very sad and confused and shaken shell of a child. Um, his world had expanded into something far too bright and turbulent for him to contextualize through his few years of life experience. Have you ever had one of those sensory experiences that just shook you to your core, for better or for worse? I know the first thing that comes to mind for me is the time that my father-in-law set off this Fourth of July firework that was way bigger than we thought it was. And the best way that I can think to explain what happened next is that we spent the next couple minutes inside of a firework. I honestly can't put it better than that. But it's some of the loudest explosions I've ever heard. I also think of the time that it stood in the mosh pit right in front of the speakers with no earplugs whatsoever um, at my very first real concert. I didn't know to bring earplugs. I should have. Um, by the way, that concert was the newsboys. Just, you know, I'm so cool. But I also think of moments of deep worship, moments that stirred my faith, moments in a crowded room ringing with voices lifted in praise. I think of moments of intense brokenness in which God tangibly stepped in to bring healing. Because divine holiness is one of those sensory experiences that can turn a room or a moment or a life 
upside down. In college, I took this class where we studied the various schools of thought on the connection between the physical and the metaphysical, the seen versus the unseen as it relates to religion. It forced me to really dissect what I believed, not just about God, but what I believed about the proximity of heaven to earth and our ability to experience divine holiness tangibly. There are countless examples of God reaching out to us by many different methods. In particular today, as we study the story of the shepherds, we're considering heavenly messengers in the Bible and in our lives today. The word messenger in the Greek is agalos, from which we derive the word angel. In the Old Testament, we find God walking among men by sending angels in the flesh to commune with his people. Some pretty amazing stories. Angels heard Sarah laugh at the idea of bearing a child in her old age just before she gave birth to her son Isaac. They led Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah moments before it burnt to the ground. They carried Elijah heavenward at the end of his ministry. David proclaims that angels camp around us day and night. Isaiah describes them as pouring out eternal worship to the Father. In the New Testament, we hear Jesus proclaim angels intercessors of safety and celebrators of salvation. We see one seated on Christ's grave after his resurrection. We learn of them joining us around the throne of God someday. And yet, even as I read these stories, I struggle with them because this is not what angels look like in my life. I'm astounded by the awesome role they play in the stories that cultivated my faith, and in the same moment, I feel skeptical because I can't fully imagine the reality of divine presence on earth in that specific way. The faith that seems a small step for others is a giant leap for my brain that craves answers and logic and proof. It wasn't until I took that college class, it was called Issues of God and Faith, um, that I realized how dubious I really was of divine holiness, divinity on earth. So let me share with you a bit about the theories of holy presence on earth that pushed me to consider what I really believed and what I didn't. The first school of thought, the first line of reasoning, it states that nothing intangible exists. Religion in this context is obsolete because there are no gods or realms beyond our current reality exactly as it is. For example, this stand is real, I can reach out and touch it and visually identify it, or the Mariana's Trench is real, we've used sensors and imaging to find it. The person next to you is real, you can reach out and take their hand. But spiritual powers are not real because they are intangible. You can't reach out and touch them. You can't use sensors and imaging to find them. Can't agree with that, even in my dubious state. So let's take a step closer to what Christians believe. The second school of thought claims that both physical and metaphysical realms exist, but they don't interact. There is a God, he created the world, but he created it in the way that you would wind up a watch, and then he left, and um, just let fate unfold all on its own. So this approach denies any possibility that our spirituality is a felt thing just like the approach before. It does advocate for intelligent design of creation and cerebral faith and moralistic theology, but not relational interaction with God. And I can't believe that either. 
But growing up a Christian gave me many opportunities to doubt. If God was something that you either felt or didn't, I had days of utter conviction of his presence in my life and days I believed with all my heart that humanity was alone in the universe. Some days I can feel Jesus right next to me. Some days I'm left in doubt because I don't see divinity showing up in our modern world in the way it did in biblical text. And it was in those moments of doubt that I found myself subconsciously deciding that divine encounters couldn't be real because they didn't fit into my exact lived experience. But in spite of all that, I don't believe in methods one or two, I can't. So I must step out of my own experience and lean into our rich history of faith experience. I have to enter into the narratives of each generation before me to understand the relationship between the holiness of God and the reality of earth. And as I do so, I encounter a third way of thinking. The final school of thought is undivided. Physical and metaphysical exist and interact constantly with each other. There are things seen, there are things unseen. What we can't see with our eyes, we feel with our hearts. And that tangibility is valid by way of personal and human experience. It's verified by ages of historical interactions with the divine. On the surface, this understanding of the relationship between heaven and earth feels objectionable irrational even. It takes intention and it takes faith to lean into. But as I've taken the time to consider how close heaven really is to us, I'm struck by the foundational evidence I have found in my own life. I haven't encountered an angelic being like Mary, but I have been protected in moments of danger in a way that I can't believe was an accident. And I haven't touched the scars in Jesus' hands like Thomas did, but I have felt his spirit intercede on my behalf. And I haven't wrestled with God like Jacob did, but I have experienced an inexplicable response of love to my frustrated arguments with the sky. I trace the pattern of interactions through the centuries until I understand them in my life today. The Christmas story is the foremost reminder to us that God desires to be with us and he exhausts every avenue to do so. It is through angelic messengers that he chooses to share each piece of his carefully crafted plan of salvation with Elizabeth and her husband and Mary and Joseph. And finally, as we step back into our story today with a wider audience. As we continue to study the adventure of the Advent, we're coming back to the story in the moment that word of Jesus' birth begins to spread to his people in the most unbelievable way. Luke 2, 8 through 14 tells us, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them and they were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Do not be afraid. I bring good news and great joy to all people. The Savior has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. You will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, 
praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. I, and I'm sure many of you, grew up hearing this story at least once a year. And I always imagine the shepherds having this like brief moment of fear before gaining a full understanding of their situation. Like the angel's here, that's cool, that's chill. Um, and they're immediately filled with that like Christmas joy that we all know and love. But as I think back on it now, I think it might have been something more like my dad's Star Wars experience in which all you've ever known is the quiet of nature and then suddenly Obi-Wan Kenobi is monologuing about peace for the galaxy and you're frantically trying to categorize this unprecedented sensory overload into something you can possibly understand. In their day and age, the shepherds lived within a unique category of society, indispensable yet undesirable. They didn't think of themselves as the kinds of people who would be made privy to the presence of the Messiah first. The Messiah was supposed to be someone of note and honor, someone with political and military power, someone spending their time in rooms where decisions are made. The might and grandeur of this Messiah in their minds might free their people, but it wouldn't do anything to elevate them within their own society. They were used to being out of sight, out of mind. And then in the most countercultural and unexpected way possible, Jesus' act of entering the world initiates an upside-down kingdom. Those on the lowest rungs are made into prophets as the angel bestows on them this crucial message that we strive to stand behind today. I bring good news and great joy to all people. In the Greek, all people is translated from panti to lao. It's all-encompassing. It indicates not just a portion of people, but the entirety of humanity. And furthermore, the term for people, lao, is found here in the dative case, indicating intentionality and purpose. In the Greek, the dative case implies the word to, by, or for ahead of the noun. I bring good news and great joy to the people, by the people, for the people. The angels traverse the divide between heaven and earth to bring great joy to the people of God's heart. They pass it on that, so that it is shared with humanity by way of their peers. They emphasize the purpose of the Messiah. He is for the people. He is their redemption and our redemption, and he is here. The presence of Jesus incites inclusivity in an exclusionary world. It invites us as Christ followers to seek a more loving world for all people. And when we follow in that example, when we love God above all else and our neighbors as ourselves, we join in the work of making the spirit of heaven evident here and now. We place our hands alongside God as he lifts the curtain between earth and the divine. I love that phrase. And when I say it, lift the curtain between earth and the divine, I can see it so clearly in my mind's eye. And I see it clearly because I have experienced it in nature and in community and in faith. There's language for this concept in innumerable cultures and systems of belief, but one of my favorites is Old Celtic Christianity. They have a term for it that poet Charlene Sledge so beautifully describes. She writes, thin places, the Celts call this place, 
both seen and unseen, where the door between the world and the next is cracked open for a moment, and the light is not all on the other side. God shapes space, holy. Thin spaces. God's home is not far off from ours. He is constantly seeking to pull us nearer to it. The intention of heaven has always been to return to us here on earth. We see this clearly in Revelation 21, 1 through 5, where it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. This was the salvific strategy that the Trinity set into motion as they sent Jesus as one of us. It was full of this hope that the angels burst into the sky to herald his entrance into the world. And even though the divine only passed a few pieces of this plan onto a small group of shepherds, they caught that vision of redemption and they were unable to keep it to themselves. We see in Luke 2, 15 through 20, continuing with our story. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that the Lord has told us about. So they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child, and they were all astonished. Then they went back to their flocks, glorifying God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. The angels are purely divine and the shepherds are purely human. But the second that Christ enters our world, that divide is broken. Divinity and humanity exist together in one body. And as Jesus lived out his earthly ministry, he set the example for this kind of existence in which we become the temple, the hands and feet of God among his people. When I was seven years old, my mom was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And treatment at this stage is incredibly aggressive. But she and my dad did their best to help my brother and I process through this situation in a healthy way. I remember them reading me a story that we implemented in our home for the days when chemo made it impossible for my mom to interact with us in the way that she normally would. We would take a string and tie a cup to either end and use it as a pretend telephone to talk through. That way my mom could have her own space to heal over on the couch and we could still have a chance to tell her all about our days, the books we read, the friends we made, you know, all the very, very important things when you're seven. I didn't like the string. I would have rather thrown it away and crawled into my mom's lap, but that just wasn't an option on bad days. And so we got creative. We stepped into the thin spaces where we could communicate to the best of our ability and we made that enough. Sin separates us from God. It has since it first entered the world, but God is not content with that separation. He spends each second finding new ways to get creative so that we live an endless and ever-changing experience 
of knowing his love. Rachel Held Evans says in her book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, some rabbis say that at birth, we are each tied to God with a string, and every time we sin, the string breaks. To those who repent of their sins, especially in the days of Rosh Hashanah, God sends the angel Gabriel to make knots in the string so that the humble and contrite are once again tied to God. Because each one of us fails, because we all lose our way on the path to righteousness from time to time, our string is full of knots. So the, but the rabbis like to say a string with many knots is shorter than one without knots. So the person with many sins, but a humble heart is closer to God. Divine holiness lies in the fact that God uses our shortcomings to draw us even closer to him. It lies in his ability to stretch out his heart and share it with us in pieces through angelic pathways. When we pick up that cup on the other end of the string, God works through us to bring unity in a divisive world. He is in us and we are for him. Each person in this room has a unique connection with the divine. That's how we were created, to use our individuality to reveal the many small shards of God scattered throughout humanity. Yours will not look like mine, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But as we continue to reflect on the Christmas story together, I invite you to explore the thin places that God has created for you, that he strives to meet you in. Search deeply for the points of existence in which you feel heaven and earth collide. It could be in the woods or on the beach. It could be in your home filled with the laughter of family and friends. It could be in a room full of shouts of praise. It could be anywhere that you find God. God desperately wants to be near you always, filling your mind with his peace and your actions with heaven-inspired love. Whether he shows up for you through angelic messengers, uncanny coincidences, the love of another, or something altogether different and beautiful, I ask you to let him in and be amazed where that connection takes you. It's Christmas, heaven is with us, and it's nearer than we know ask you to let it in. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for being a God that finds new ways to draw close to us each and every day, for sending your heart to us by all means possible. I pray that you would inspire us to look for you in the world around us and that you would be present where we need to find you. Be with us as we continue to lean into the story of your son among us and search for new ways to connect with you each and every day. We love you.